Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Ten years ago this week, August 9th, 2007, the crash of the global financial system got underway. It started in the city of London, the brothel of global finance, where everything is allowed for a price and every rule of morality and decency is transgressed. A French bank, BNP Paribas, told investors in two funds they were shutting them down because of a complete evaporation of liquidity. In other words, they had no cash. By the time all the other financial institutions had revealed their duplicity, a year had gone by, Lehman Brothers collapsed, and the world was poised on the edge of economic catastrophe. The event marks a before and after for ordinary people, meaning you and me, in the same way that the oil price shock of 1973 did, and the stock market crash and bank runs of 1929-1932 did. The banks got bailed out, and those who work in their more speculative end have recovered what they lost. Those who don't work in finance, however, have been forced to think about the way they earn their living in a more fundamental way, and so on this anniversary, rather than obsess about finance and the fact that bankers didn't get sent to jail, I want to take the occasion to ask a question fundamental to the history of our times. What is work? What is employment? Are they the same thing or very different concepts? It's an important question to ask, because I think the answer will show us whether we are entering a new epoch of history. Here's a clue to the word's different meanings. We are told we will have to work longer. In Britain last week, it was announced that the age at which Britons in their 40s could collect their state pensions, Social Security, would be going up to 68. Work longer. But will we be employed longer? It's all well and good if people are living longer, that they stay in the workforce longer, but it would be jolly nice if the government told that to employers, almost all of whom seem keen on getting rid of their employees once they get past 55. When you add in all the stories about robots doing most forms of work by the time those in their 40s are eligible for their pensions, there seem to be some contradictions that need to be resolved. Even before the crash, the overarching theme of my four-decade-long work life has been the steady erosion, the devaluing of employment. I don't mean value in just the monetary sense, but in the social sense. How can I talk about devaluing of employment when the unemployment rate today, midsummer 2017, is 4.3% in the U.S., 4.5% in the U.K.? In the 1960s, the golden era of the American economy, 4.3% was full employment and economic contentment. Well, numbers are pure in their value, but data is not. 4.3% unemployment today is not the same as 4.3% unemployment back then. Today, you're counted as employed if you work one hour or 40 hours during a week. Back then, 40 hours was the standard. A quarter of the jobs added in the most recent monthly report in the U.S. were in restaurants and bars. Hospitality is not an industry for building a career. Waiting table, tending bar, good gigs for people on the way to something else, or for folks who need a little cash infusion every day. I've worked for tips, and I urge everyone who hears this to be generous. 
But you wouldn't want to build a society in which more people work for tips than work at a steady job, manufacturing something or developing specialist knowledge that can be exported, and yet that seems to be the direction in which the Anglo-American economies are headed. Robots are doing the heavy lifting in manufacturing, and as we keep being told in the technology press, they're coming for the jobs of paper pushers next. Just a little aside, have you ever thought about the brain power and financial muscle in Silicon Valley being devoted to putting humanity out of a job? In the 60s, when the unemployment rate was 4.3%, brains and money were being applied to curing cancer and getting a man on the moon. People looking to understand how Anglo-American society has ended up in the mess it is in need to look at the four-decade-long process of separation between the words work and employment. Americans have come in from the land, but are recreating an urban version of its insecurities. We are a society of smallholders who work in the service industries, often on short-term contracts, for subsistence. We can't be sure from one season to the next what our harvest will bring in. This feeds insecurity. You see its morbid effects everywhere in American society, not least in the election result of November 2016. Since the crash, we live in an era of preemptive downsizing. Within four months of layman's going bust, 1.9 million people were laid off in America. Most did not work in financial services. Employers and enterprises of all sizes in many different areas of the economy took advantage of the event to cut payrolls, reduce headcount, and so on. Many of the new jobs created since that nadir have been in part-time work. Downsizing has become a molecule in the air America breathes. People rarely lose their jobs these days because the buggy whip factory is going out of business. Fewer than 10% of Americans work in manufacturing. Most people work in service industries, and in the service arena, labor is often the largest fixed cost a business has, so people are laid off because the accepted way for managers to reduce costs and make their quarterly profit targets is to get rid of employees even in money-making enterprises. Casualization of the workforce is rampant and has accelerated in recent years. Even the most liberal institutions do all they can to avoid taking on full-time employees. At American universities, an army of adjunct professors provide an estimated three-quarters of undergraduate teaching. National Public Radio, where I was once a correspondent, specialized in keeping people on temporary contracts to avoid providing the security of full-time employment. We've been headed in this direction for a long time. When he was president, Bill Clinton often reminded people that the days of jobs for life were over and that the average American would work for many different employers during the course of their working lives. He was urging people to embrace change in their lives without giving much thought to the insecurity this constant change implies. We have entered a new epoch in which you will, if you are lucky, have a 20-year window of full-time employment and can lay the foundations for the stability that comes with it. Buy a house, set aside for retirement, educate your children. Those leaving education, whether after high school, university, or graduate school, will face a longer wait to find full-time salaried employment. And once you get past 50, you will be on borrowed time. How this ends, I don't know. And neither does anyone in government, industry, or handing out millions in venture capital to a startup that won't exist in 18 months. 
it's something politicians avoid talking about substantively. In the last presidential election, Hillary Clinton tried to convince former coal miners, proxies for all industrial workers, that as the country moved away from fossil fuels, they would not be forgotten. Donald Trump promised that he would bring their jobs back. Clinton waffled. Trump lied. Machines will do the miners' work. And lies, Trump waffle, every day of the week. Given the insecurity of work life in American Britain and the effect it is having on politics, you would think politicians might have done more thinking about this. But the cleverer ones are just interested in exploiting the fear, and the rest seem to be staring at the data on a spreadsheet trying to figure out what the numbers mean. It's not much better in the newspapers politicians and their advisors read. Forty years ago, I was a cab driver in New York. Told you I worked for tips. And one evening, round midnight, I got flagged down near the New York Times building, and a guy got in, and we had a pleasant chat. It was A. H. Raskin, the paper's labor correspondent. Yes, in those days, the Times had a full-time correspondent covering labor, employment, the working life. Today, there is no beat reporter at the New York Times covering the world of work and employment. But since the crash, they have created a reporter's beat covering the 1%, the ultra-rich, and an editor for gender issues. Throughout this post-crash decade, when employment and work, or the lack thereof, was the major domestic news in most communities in the U.S., America's newspaper of record did not do much more reporting on employment than parse through the monthly data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And I don't mean to pick on the Times. Every serious newspaper in the U.K. and U.S. failed to report the chaos ruining tens of millions of lives. And then they woke up to Brexit and Donald Trump and wondered why. And you still won't find any one of them doing regular beat reporting or analysis on the fundamental questions about the difference between work and employment. But those of us who have been thrown out of full-time employment over the last 10 or 15 years have had to do a lot of thinking about it. And here is my answer to the question, what is the difference between work and employment? Work is a necessity, pure and simple, but employment is something more. Employment brings status and stability to one's life. It's not just an economic good. It's a social good whose non-financial benefits, an affirmative sense of identity, being part of a workplace community, being financially committed to a stable society, form a positive feedback loop into the wider economy. And unless politicians, executives, and venture capitalists seeking to fund a new world understand this and make employment not just work, their priority, and quickly, we will see the crash that began ten years ago this week as merely the door opening to a new historical epoch, a very, very bleak one. And that's all for this edition of FRDH Podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. I promise you, not every podcast is as gloomy as this one, and while you are there, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks for listening.